Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, what's my excuse this week, you ask, for being late at getting this podcast out? Well, in the Navy I learned that the only proper answer to a question like that is, no excuse, sir. Now, I'd like to be able to tell you that I've got chronic fatigue syndrome or something like that. Although you astrologers out there might also be interested in knowing that for the next year or so, Saturn will continue conjuncting my natal sun in the 12th house. And if you know what that means, you know that I'm in for a long haul of the blahs. However, my guess is that I'm just overly tired from staying up late and talking for several days in a row. And from that perspective, it's, uh, it's been a good week around the old psychedelic salon. On Sunday, our musician-artist friend Jarrett stopped by, and so I called Matt Palomary, who's also a friend of his, and Matt came over for what turned out to be a long day and night of interesting conversation. And that vibe just continued on Monday and Tuesday when Charlie Grobe spent some time here during appearances at the annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association, where he and Francisco Moreno and one of the doctors involved in the Johns Hopkins psilocybin study gave a presentation about their collective work using psilocybin, one of the active ingredients in magic mushrooms, in their research in new treatment methods for various illnesses. I think it's interesting that a mainstream group like the American Psychiatric Association would put a topic like that on their agenda. Maybe uh, the evidence of the effectiveness of psychedelic medicines is becoming so obvious that even the mainstream now has to take notice. Charlie is going to send me a copy of their presentation, and if it has some new information that we haven't already heard in a podcast, well, then I'll pass it along to you. But right now, I don't know much about what was said, because uh, Charlie and I had all kinds of other things to talk about, and and then uh, Mateo came back by to see Charlie, and uh, it turned into another late night. While I didn't uh, turn on my recorder and record any of our conversations, I did arrange with Charlie to do a couple of interviews in the next few weeks, and I'll do my best to make that happen. But right now, I'd better get back to today's program, which is the continuation of a trialogue that was recorded on June 8, 1998, in Santa Cruz, California, where Rupert Sheldrake, Ralph Abraham, and Terrence McKenna were talking about Rupert's hypothesis about morphogenic family fields. When we left off last week, Terrence McKenna was just saying that he thought perhaps the concept of a family field was only a metaphor and not an actual energy field. So we'll pick up where Terrence had just floated that idea and see where they take it. It's a a conceptual metaphor. The field. 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 Yes, it doesn't have any dynamics of its own. But maybe field... The model that you make would have the dynamics. Yes. There's nothing there to measure. There's nothing there to interfere with. This is a way of describing a situation. Or modeling it. Yes. Like a magnetic field's way of modeling magnetic fields. Well, magnetic fields. Hmm? Field in this sense means... uh, extended wavy thing that um, an object would have like a sphere of it around it or something. Mm. 
but I'm not sure when you originally started speaking about morphic fields and so on, were you thinking of um, something like the magnetic field or, or were you thinking of more um, abstractly as uh, Hellinger uses it in the context of the family field? Well, I was thinking of something more abstractly, but I think that these fields have a kind of ontological reality comparable to that of electromagnetic fields. I always thought of it more as the electromagnetic field, kind of that kind of field. Uh, when I first read your works many years ago, the primary metaphor is the magnetic field. I mean, yeah. that's what gives you a sense of a field. Yeah. But if you look at the kind of physics that would be most appropriate for describing these fields, it's not electromagnetism, it's quantum field theory. Oh, it's not that either. It's gravitation. It's just the field concept, I mean, an extended thing that's um, represented by a continuous real number variable of, of, of um, defined on a coordinate system. Well, no, I had, a, I had a discussion with David Peach and Basil Hiley uh, recently in London. We had a whole day we were discussing this question. Hiley is Bohm's principal um, follower. He worked with Bohm for many years. And we were discussing, we, we went at great length about this nature of fields, and with one distinction they made for me which was very helpful was that these quantum fields, of a quant say you've got two photons whizzing apart from the same atom and you measure the polarization of one and the others immediately, instantaneously by entanglement or non-locality or non-separability or Bell's theorem or the EPR paradox, the other immediately has the opposite polarization that the model you have for the connection of those, the quantum function that describes them, is, until the moment you measure, it's a kind of private field. There is a connection between the two, one here and one here, but it's not like the connection between a magnet and another magnet, or between the source of light, the sun, and the sink, the earth, where the light goes in. It's all the gravitational field between the earth and the moon. It's not that at any point in between you can go and measure the strength of that field because that field only affects those two photons. It's a kind of private field that links them, that's not determinable by measurements in between. But isn't the very notion of field carry with it an idea of inclusivity of space and time? In other words, why call it a field at all? Why not just call it a, a, a connection? Well, you could, call it, you could call, just call it a connection, but the, the, I think quantum field theory does have a notion of fields underlying this, but they're not in normal space and time. Ralph would know that. It's a completely different use of the word field, and it is a private in that particles have, have a field. I mean, there only exist fields, and then their interpretation is, uh, as particles is, is just kind of interpretation, but that the universe consists of like so many of these fields of interaction, as it were, and they're their variables are not spatial. It's a completely different model. There couldn't be anything more different than the use of this word field in the quantum domain, the use of the word field in classical physics, for example. So uh, I'm extremely suspicious of the application of quantum mechanical concepts in um, the arena of uh, psychology, consciousness, uh, sociology, and, and so on. Yes, but you see, the to me we've got two fields. It's much, much funnier hmm. than the face on Mars. 
all right, but we've got two, you see, we've got two field models in physics. We've got the sort of classical electromagnetic field models with continuous fields. And measurements can be carried out at any point yes. in the field, and it can be discovered to be there. But you see now, David Bohm's model of, of quantum theory, which you referred to earlier, the one that involves, you know, if you can get rid of the non-causal indeterminism, but at the, what he substitutes for indeterminism is what he calls a quantum potential, which is a field, uh, an invisible field of quantum potentials that shapes what happens to different particles, and which has as a part of its very nature non-locality. This quantum potential means something can happen here or it can happen there. But the field itself is in some kind of higher dimension, which he calls the implicate order. And it's the realm of possibilities, which quantum fields are defined in terms of fields of multi-dimensional fields of possibility, which are not the same kinds of things. Now, morphic resonance involves non, what one might call non-local effects. So it makes me interested in the only branch of science which has non-locality as part of its normal structure. And so the question is, is there anything in this quantum stuff with its non-locality that relates to all these other instances. You know, a, a ch mother knowing about a child, a pigeon separated from its flock many miles away and being able to come home and so on, um, a father separated from a, a son and having a telepathic link between them. These are kinds of non-locality. They're system parts of the same system, still remaining connected at a distance. Is this a mere analogy? Or does it show us that there's something deep being revealed by quantum physics? Not that you can explain all things in terms of existing quantum theory of particles, but that this, they've stumbled on something in quantum theory which is common to systems of organization at many levels of complexity. And that this, there is a, there's therefore more similarity between the quantum models of fields and these phenomena than classical Maxwell-type electromagnetic models of fields. But these are two quite different sorts of fields. And the gravitational field is different again. So which field model? We maybe need a quite different field model. And we don't necessarily have to have any of those. But it would have to include what quantum field theory has. I think the model, what it has in common with that that's interesting is the private field, the fact that if you have a tremendous emotional link to Finn, say, and if you could pick up telepathically messages from Finn, it's a kind of private field. It affects you and Finn, but I wouldn't expect in a linear line between you and Finn to go along with a meter and measure it. Um, no, so the private field aspect is interesting, the non-locality aspect of it is interesting, and therefore it may be a better model, or at least it frees us up from thinking we've got to have a model that's only based on the electromagnetic pattern. Well, it seems to me that a great deal is lost that way because, uh, for example, there's no um, natural model for communication. In the case of a mechanical field, like the uh, two billiard balls are connected by a spring. If one billiard ball shakes, then the vibration travels down the spring to the other one. This is electromagnetic photons, they are all, all kind of communication in the world are modeled in more or less the same way through a uh, vibration-like uh, disturbance of a sort of mechanical vibrating field. And that's convenient because we're thinking of communications, uh, uh, actually we're trying to model communications in the family field, it's the communications between different members of the family that make it happen, that's where the activity is.
But in a quantum field, like the Einstein-Rosen-Podolsky thing, like if you measure the polarization of this photon here, and immediately the other one has the opposite polarization, although it's not communication through photons, because it's twice the speed of light, if they're moving apart, it's considered to be instantaneous. Although the word communication is denied to this, and the correct usage is instantaneous correlation, if a member of the family dies, and another member of the family immediately feels some kind of perturbation. Maybe it is more like that quantum effect than like a series of wobbling springs moving through the intervening space. Seems like a long shot to me. Physical, the, part of the problem is that physical models break down when prosecuted to quantum mechanical levels. For example, uh, when you stand on a hillside at night and look at the stars, you see all the stars in the sky. Well, if you move three feet and look again, you still see all the stars in the sky. The implication of this is that wherever you stand in the universe, you can see all the stars that can be seen, a great many stars. Well, what you're seeing are photons. Well, do photons from all the stars fill every cubic volume of space, no matter how small? Or are we asked to believe that if you were shrinking, you would finally reach dimensions where the stars begin going out because there isn't room in the space you're in for the photons to occupy that space? quantum physicists tell us, no, there is no size so small that it causes the stars to go out. But this seems to imply then that life photons, which are real things from every star in the universe, can crowd themselves into another real thing, a physical volume, no matter how small. And this generates contradictions which point out that even trying to use language about these things somehow betrays them what we think they're saying they aren't saying because if they're really saying what we think they're saying they generate absurdities such as that and think how many photons there must be in the universe if you can see every star from every point and what is a photon that an object a hundred million light years away can fill all space right down to the nanometer and below uh, volumes with photons. This is William wouldn't be so keen on this one. This is orthodox physics as I understand. Well, that's the corpuscular view. But I think m many uh, metaphors we've shared over the, the years, like uh, the owner and the pet are separated in space. There's kind of an elastic dough in between them get that gets uh, stretched out, and um, the vibrating uh, realms morphic by the, the resonance. Okay, like resonance is where it doesn't make a great deal of sense in, in quantum mechanics. Resonance is a metaphor that comes from the acoustic realm. I like the acoustic realm. We are connected by air and elastic medium. We snap our fingers here. Sound wave goes down. Another sound wave goes down. They can amplify or, or they can interact additively or destructively depending on their frequencies and so on. These metaphors we've used over and over again that I 
I thought I thought we were in love. And now I find out that you know that, that um, it seemed to me that we were using this particular metaphoric language to cover a lot of uh, ground in the uh, embryogenesis and the, in, in the social sphere and the emergence of behavior and the evolution of the mind and, and so on that was more or less uh, based in, in this kind of uh, mechanical um, meaning of concept uh, associated with the word field, field, resonance and so on that had extended and um, quantum mechanics is nothing like this. It has uh, a very, very complicated model. I mean, it's good in its spheres. It has completely different concepts, and that's good. And there are realms in classical physics where you have two different models, the quantum mechanical one and another one, and they're complementary or supplementary models, and that's, that's uh, useful. But if it's already such a complicated model for a single particle, then what are we talking about with the, uh, the conscious, the state of consciousness and extended mind, or um, the communication between uh, animals of the same species and communication between animals of different species, and so on? We, we, we don't have a rich enough vocabulary of metaphors from quantum mechanics to deal with any of the things we conventionally deal with the communication resonance uh, telepathy is the sharing of an idea whatever an idea is we think of it as kind of a, a, sh- a space-time pattern and an extended thing this is a cognitive strategy basically. or a feeling telepathy is literally distant feeling yeah yeah I don't really see quantum mechanics being very useful no, but you see, then if we can't have a situation where either we have to pick existing quantum mechanics or we have to have traditional me- mechanical models. Yeah. And the ideal situation would be a field model that can pick and mix these different metaphors in a new way. Um, well, maybe the best thing is to just give up trying to anchor it to the vocabulary of quantum physics and invent a vocabulary of macro physical fields. Yeah. I mean, we yes. We well, could do a probability wave associated to a bird, another probability wave associated to another bird, and then collapsing the wave functions with the integration operator and the Dirac delta of the two. I don't know. I think this <laughs> 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 well then, I mean, the, the idea of morphic fields, as I see, you see, is more, it's, 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 uh, it's not a fully articulated model, it's a, a kind of word or phrase that can cover a host of possible models. It's like a hope for a field, a hope for yes, a Yes, it's a success, a uh, metaphorically speaking, depends on a certain amount of fuzziness. Yes. Now, if someone come along and say, okay, we've got the perfect model for these things, we call it super-connectionism or whatever, that's fine by me. I mean, it just doesn't have to be called a field, but unless you have the idea there's something there... Why, why not call it something like the vocabulary that associates with the Bell field or the Bell phenomenon? Call it uh, a dimension of coextensive connectivity. Well, that would that not the term they use? I mean, that would be introducing sort of rather Whiteheadian type language. And for most people, the hypothesis of coextensive connectivity is rather too much. Um, it would be called CC or something. It would right. soon be abbreviated um, because it's too much of a mouthful. 
you could call it anything. I mean, I, it's partly, I, it would maybe good to have a completely new name for it, but that new name would have to... I think I use quite often use the word connectivity now, interconnection, because that's what it's about. But it's not just an interconnection in space, but in time. Yeah, so a connectionist model is sort of the simplest. It mm. doesn't capture all the phenomena that are very easy to think about. And, um, it's the rubber band approach. Is the, is, yes, the nodes connected by the rubber bands, and you can flip one and a message will go down. Yes, well, I like that. I mean, I use the rubber band metaphor a lot. And then there's another level up where each uh, individual has a vibrating halo or something, which may extend to infinity but gets thinner as it goes out, and then the different halos move around, and their communication has to do with the morphic resonance, as it were, in the overlap of these. Mm-hmm halos and that is a more complicated and a higher level model and from a halo model with this uh, vibrating nimbus uh, around each head <laughs> you could then um, collapse down to a connectionist model that would be like a simpler representation of some of the information in the, in the nimbic model I like that, the nimbic model well, I have the whole uh, nimbic theory. You know, my uh, uh, a paper on angels, on the physics of angels, but I didn't call it that. There's a Catholic order called the Knights of Saint Nimbus. <laughs> and in the representation of angels of the Renaissance painters, you see that that's where that's where the word nimbus is used. That um, this. Um, golden circle around the head no matter from what angle you look you always see the the entire globe behind the head so that the halo cannot possibly be a disc um, like a graduation hat it's not like a disc it looks like a disc sometimes it's conical it's a elliptical thing but the only physical object that you could imagine that would be would appear as it appears in the paintings of Renaissance painters, would be a spherical globe around the head, which appears gold only when seen from the inside. And therefore, any angle you look, you would see the front hemisphere of the nimbus as transparent, and the back hemisphere of it as golden. I see. So you've worked out the physics of the nimbus. Yes. Hmm. Yes, well, you look at these things and you don't think. It's quite forgivable because we don't spend too much time looking at angels. But the wings, I noticed that the sections are elliptical and that means when they flap them, they're they're making circles. Well, it's it's not the physics, honestly. It's the geometry of angels. I see, but I still, I wish I'd known this earlier, because we, in the next edition of the Physics of Angels, maybe we should have a geometrical appendix. Yes. The geometry of the nimbus, the, the, the um, <coughs> flapping of the circular motion of the wings. Yes, and so well, I should, uh, and I the know, mechanics I... of the seraphim with its six wings. I don't know whether that features in your... Uh, and no, well, I have an unpublished yeah. extrapolation to... What's it called? Tetramorph. 
the tetramorph? The ones, are those the ones with four wings? Yes. Oh, I see. I was thinking of the four angels facing in the four directions and their wings are hitched in Ezekiel. No, that may, wheel, that may actually be the real meaning of the term. I think so. I think so, yes. We, we do have, uh, yes, it generates six dimensions. Well, this is another story. I stopped sending my papers around published on paper when the papers actually became NIMBY. I mean, what do you call it? Well, the pages on the World Wide Web. Uh, but you don't read papers on the World Wide Web, so therefore you never received. Maybe I should send you a copy of the Geometry of English. Yes, maybe a physical hard copy would be a good thing to have. Yes, yes. It's case. Well, Terence doesn't, although he's constantly on the web. He doesn't give signs of instant recognition of his geometrical model. Hmm. True. Well, we only write. We, we do not read. We do not have time to read other people's pages because we're so busy writing our own. It's an occupational hazard being an author. There's no time to read. So in terms of field theories, there's another kind that, that you haven't mentioned so far, but which is the, the hydrodynamical fields. Yes. Now, how do they compare with all these other kinds of fields? Well, the hydrodynamic field is very similar to the electromagnetic field, but uh, because fluids move and the electromagnetic field doesn't move, then uh, you, you have your choice with, with uh, say, shallow water waves. I'm standing on the bank of the cliff. I'm looking down at the beach, and I see these waves are coming along. So I can uh, <coughs> think either of the uh, the water is st standing still, which it is actually. Molecules of water are going, moving up and down vertically mm -hmm. only. And then they're coordinated in such a way as if pulling and pushing on nearest neighbors so, so that a wave uh, goes along. So that's a uh, Earth-centered coordinate system, as it were. Or you could ride along the wave. Then the mathematical description is somehow simpler because three feet ahead of you is uh, lower and three feet behind you is lower and you're at the top of a wave. So you move along like surfers do on the crest of the wave. Geometry is fixed. It's not moving along. And so your framework moves with it. That's yeah. the called the co-moving frame. Mm -hmm. So coordinates are good. This the most basic thing in mathematical modeling is coordinates. You know, there was an extensive uh, geometry of conic sections along with Apollonius, uh, very good, complete. All we know of conic sections was known to Apollonius, but it was very difficult and became simple when uh, the idea of coordinate systems was abstracted from uh, Renaissance painters by Descartes and turned into a, a cognitive strategy based on rulers and, and so on. So the coordinate frame is the basis of, of, of everything, and even if you don't think of a material field, like quantum mechanics has the coordinate frame anyway. Um, I, I think that this hydrodynamics is good because it forces you to have two different coordinate frames, one moving relative to the other. In the three-body problem, for example, you have the Earth, uh, the Sun, and the Moon. The moon is considered sort of half of what was called restricted three-body problem. The moon is infinitesimally light compared to the Earth and the Sun. So the, the convenient coordinate system is like this. You draw a line between the Earth and the Sun, and you measure along it until you get to the place where it balances, the center of mass. This might be actually inside the Sun. 
and uh, then you have to take the uh, coordinate grid and you attach it to that line with the origin of the center at that point and make it rotate around. So in that coordinate system, there is no rotation of the Earth and the Sun. The Sun is fixed a little bit away from the origin. The Earth is fixed way out there. In this coordinate plane, you then let the Moon move. And then that's the simplest model is the one that William of Ockham likes and the one in which uh, Newton proved Kepler's laws. So a coordinate is the most basic thing when mathematics is going to be used for anything. It's not a symbol of form of logic and, and, and so on. It's, it's the coordinate grid in which you measure something. What you measure? Well, the aggressiveness of the gander or the submissiveness of the goose or, or whatever. You're measuring things in a coordinate grid where the members of the family are placed in a family field. There, the word field is sort of referring to the coordinate grid which is the stage on which the actors are placed, together with perhaps some attributes at different places, like the temperature varies from place to place. Hmm. In case you took the temperature only of the individual birds or the actors in the family or something, then temperature would only be measurable in certain places in the coordinate grid, and there would be no measurements elsewhere. And then that's when you get into more or less quantum mechanics tries to deal with this, that you don't have continuous functions representing particles or just, just continuity. So you think of them as a point with uh, attributes. The probability wave is sort of the attribute of a point. They have different points moving around, they have different waves from moving relative to each other and maybe even ignorant of each other. Nothing is more basic than the coordinate grid. So do we have a wrap on this? Yes. Well, do we have... Um, well, so do we conclude that it's possible to build models of fields starting from this, this hydrodynamic... Is the best starting point, in your opinion, then this hydrodynamical system? Well, if, if, system? if the... Um, if mathematics is going to be at all helpful in this area of the family field, and thus it is to be all helpful in the context of the psychic pets or any of the other experiments. Mm -hmm. We have a mathematical model for the observations of any experiment. Then um, it's necessary to choose a simplest case because uh, it's already complicated enough. And then it's essential to have data. I mean, when uh, Bob Lane, the psychiatrist, came to be wanted by chaos theory in this, practice, you have to you have to get some numerical data. Well, I don't know if ethologists and anthropologists have very much numerical data, but that would be the and, start. And the wish to mathematicize psychology generally is not a wish to make people healthier or happier. It's a wish to make psychology more respectable as a science. Mm -hmm. It's not clear it's a healthy trend at all, though it's been pursued furiously for nearly a century, um, the more successful psychoanalytic theories, seems to me, somebody could offer counter data, are the least mathematically driven and depend really on this mysterious business that we call the gifted therapist. The gifted therapist is not a mathematically defined entity. 
um, psychology would love to be a science, but perhaps at the expense of the client base it's supposed to serve, which are uh, pathological and neurotic human beings. Well, the mm-hmm. Gestalt uh, psychologist came up with extensive uh, field theories in the 1930s and 40s. But little and mathematics. I think what we're talking about, uh, the, the family field, no, well, they have a growing mathematical <laughs> model, which I think personally is quite promising for the future of psychology in terms of its uh, its potential usefulness in dealing with world problems and so on. I think it's very important developments like models for the arms race and for family complex and specific strategies for conflict res- resolution. Uh, these actually might be uh, effective strategies evolved for the first time thanks to mathematical modeling is a possibility that can't be ruled out. So I think it's a valuable exercise that we should try to develop a mathematical model for family fields, and particularly in families of birds where there's extensive data. Mm-hmm. And it would be great to find a synthetic, up-to-date, modern ethologist new of the existence in the literature of actual numerical data from experiments measured with comparable to your experiments with videotapes where we count how many times in, in an hour the, birth, the, the dog goes to the window. Yes, so data, uh, we need more data, but we won't get more data unless people have the idea that it's worth trying to model. And that's the hermeneutics of science. And we need more data in several areas, one anthropology where, in fact, a lot of classical anthropology involves those kinship structures of circles and triangles and those kind of family tree. A lot of it actually does have models of the social structure. That's what they've concentrated on in social anthropology, classical British social anthropologies of that kind. So there's that data. Then there's data from ethology, and there could be more if quantitative ethology could be done if people had a model to guide them in what they do. Mm-hmm. Hellinger's work could be extended to classify different kinds of fields and look at those of different cultural groups. If you ask lots of Indians and Chinese, you could do that. So these are all empirical ways of um, approaching it. Yes, and that seems to be the only way forward. Especially well, mathematical modeling is one question, and then and the efficacy of it, and then the other is uh, specifically field modeling. You're going to have to go. I'm going to have to go. But I think this was very... No, I didn't cut it off, right as Terrence seemed to be saying that he thought it was very something or other. That's uh, actually where the tape cut off. So I'm going to assume that Terrence was about to say that he thought their conversation was either very interesting or helpful in some way. But I've got to be honest with you. The uh, Family Fields trilogue has been my least favorite so far. Not that I didn't get a few nuggets out of it, but it just didn't seem loaded with golden ore like some of their earlier conversations. As far as the uh, tapes that Ralph Abraham loaned Bruce Damer and made to digitize, the talk you just heard was the last one we have a recording of, at least chronologically. And for me at least, it seemed as if they were running out of steam, particularly Terrence, uh, who we hardly heard from in this discussion. And it was less than a year after this trilogue that he was stricken with terminal cancer, but uh, maybe I'm just imagining a decrease in their energy levels in this podcast. 
to uh, test my theory, however, I, I think that the next series of trialogues I'll podcast will be the ones that were held at Hazelwood in Devon, England sometime in 1993, and then you can decide along with me whether you think the early trialogues were more energy and idea-packed than their later conversations were. On a little different subject, uh, a few weeks ago I mentioned an article that a friend sent me about a plant whose folk name is Fairy Dreamflower. And one of the more remarkable things about it was the fact that apparently you can just sniff it and get high. Well, that little comment has touched off a flurry of email, two of which I'll read right now. One comes from Nat Bletter, who said, I'm an ethnobotanist, the one recently interviewed by KMO on Sea Realm and Psychonautica about salvia. And I was really interested in your little note about Gigibong at the end of your last podcast. My friend studies this genus of plants, but I can't find a reference to this species or the common name fairy dreamflower. Where was the Is There Sex After Death article published that you mentioned? I have access to a huge amount of botanical literature at the New York Botanical Garden where I work, so if I had a reference, I could track it down for you. It would kind of make sense if this genus was psychoactive since cloves, its sister species in the same genus, has some reports of psychoactivity. But there are no other plants I know of in this family that are psychoactive. And another email came from Eric who said, Any luck on finding some info on the Australian fairy flower whose fragrance is reportedly intoxicating? The one you mentioned at the end of Podcast 89, I believe. What was the spelling of the official name? I would like to research it a little. Well, Nat was correct in his guess that I misspelled the botanical name of this plant a few podcasts back. So here's the full quote on the article and the spelling of the name. The article itself was a reprint from the Encyclopedia of Entheogens, published in 2005 by Zaskin Books. That's X-A-S, new word K-I-N, Zaskin's Books. And if I'm not mistaken, Zaskin is a town in Australia. But uh, Google doesn't seem to be of much help to, in finding this publication. The copy of the story that I received was published in RFD number 129, autumn 2007, which also suggests that this story has an Australian origin, unless a time warp has already moved me into autumn without first having had a spring and summer here in sunny Southern California. Now, the full botanical name is spelled, and I'll go slowly here because I got it wrong the last time. It's S, as in Sam, S-Y-Z-G-I-U-M. And the second name is G-I-D-J-I-B-A-N-G. And the common name is Gijibong. I think I'm saying that's right, but it's uh, G-E-J-E-B-O-N-G. And the folk name is Fairy Dreamflower, with the old-time spelling of fairy as F-A-E-R-I-E. As for distribution of this plant, the article that I have says, and I quote, At the present early stage of research into Gigibong, it appears to be restricted to a remote and relatively inaccessible rock ledges on the slopes of certain mountains close to the east coast of Australia. And uh, in regards to cultivation, the article goes on to say, Gigibong grows so profusely in its natural habitat that it is difficult to understand why it has proved so hard to cultivate. Research continues. I'm glad to hear that. In appearance, uh, Gigibong is a small shrub up to 60 centimeters tall with upright, fluffy, violet, magenta-colored flowers 
and stiff, narrow, crispit leaves to 25 centimeters by 5 centimeters. Dark green and dull on upper surface and paler underneath on the underneath side of the leaf. The flower has a characteristic fragrance resembling a blend of gangle, juniper, and clove. And uh, that hint of clove seems to me to be a confirmation of Nat's hunch about this plant. I think the thing about that article that has generated the most interest is the line that says, The flower acts as a mild hypnotic when sniffed, independent of the dosage. Similarly, quite small quantities of Gigibong leaves will produce an entheogenic effect, which is not increased by larger doses. So now we're going to have to wait and see if any of our intrepid researchers can come up with some more information for us about this interesting little plant. Another thing that uh, Eric said in his email was, I've been interested in ethnobotany, more specifically those with entheogenic properties, since the early 90s. I was an occasional BPC student back then, went to a few conferences, classes, workshops, and other similar events. I just began converting my old tapes to MP3. We should trade some recordings someday. As you probably know, his uh, reference to BPC, at least I believe, is uh, to the Botanical Preservation Corps, which uh, I think is still being operated by Rob Montgomery. And you can find their website at www.botanicalpreservationcorps, all one word, .com, where Rob has quite a few books and tapes he's selling. About a year ago, Rob gave me a call to say that he was thinking about releasing some of his cassette recordings for me to play here in the salon, but uh, I haven't had a chance to follow up on that one yet either. So, uh, Eric, if those tapes you're converting to uh, MP3 format are from BPC, well, we've probably got a copyright problem in using them. But any tapes that you or any of our other listeners have that you've recorded yourself at some of these conferences, well, I'd be happy to uh, consider them for inclusion in some of our podcasts. And I'm mentioning this because each week I get a few offers like this, and I'm always excited to hear these talks, and hopefully we'll be able to play some of them here in the salon. Another email came in from someone I'll just call Mr. S., who said, I just wanted to thank you for all of your hard work and effort in posting all the McKenna podcasts. I've had many hours of enjoyment listening to them. I often listen to them in bed and hear the bard talking about elf machines in my sleep. (laughs) P.S. As I'm a little paranoid, please do not publish my email address or full name on your website. The reason I'm reading this right now is to assure you that any and all communications I receive, I keep very confidential. As much as I'd like to use the full names or even screen names to thank people who write and particularly those kind listeners who have sent in donations, well, I've made a point of only using first names or pseudonyms so as to keep your private lives private. And don't feel bad about being a bit paranoid. I can certainly understand that emotion, and I even live with it myself from time to time. Because you know what they say, just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean that no one is after you. (laughs) Another email comes from Pio, who says... I've really been enriched by the show, and even if it's under today's shadow of oppression, it really brings the whole salon concept uh, back from the 1800s in Paris. First world folks seem to become increasingly more insular with technology putting us in front of computer screens more often than other like-minded humans. But your show really puts us all in a spot where we can feel like we're keeping a finger on the erratic, thrilled pulse of what goes on for the greater psychedelic work today. 
Well, thank you for your kind words, P.O. I, I really do appreciate them. And uh, along those lines, I'd like to point out that, yes, it is difficult to overcome all this tech that now seems to get in the way of person-to-person meetings. And, of course, uh, that's one of the reasons I like the salon concept myself. And if you're like a significant number of our other fellow saloners, you're probably feeling a little bit isolated, particularly if you don't have anyone to talk with about these interesting topics. But I found that uh, one of the things that helps me feel less alone is to tune into some of the programs coming out of the UK on the Cannabis Podcast Network. In fact, they've got a new program over there now called Lefty's Lounge that uh, actually makes me feel like I'm sitting in my living room listening to Lefty and his friends carry on about all kinds of interesting topics. And the same goes for the other programs in that network, which you can find at dopefiend, D-O-P-E-F-I-E-N-D dot co dot U-K. After you uh, listen to some of these programs for several weeks, it's just like getting a phone call from some friends who are having a party and gave you a call. It's not as good as sitting around sharing a pipe or two, but in my humble opinion, it's the next best thing. And if you do join Lefty, well, tell him I said hello. Continuing with uh, P.O.'s email, he said... As a fellow recovering Catholic, and by the way, P.O., uh, I feel I'm fully recovered now, but <laughs> I was a recovering Catholic. I've uh, sort of painted myself into a corner, surrounded by empiricism and the need to prove out every idea outside the realm of concrete experience. And at the same time, wishing to crawl the beckoning walls of the unprovable and the unexplained. I've some experience with mushrooms, and I was really interested in attending the shamanic conference in Iquitos in July. I felt from your talks with Matt Palomari that there is a sort of in-club mentality that surrounds contacts in South America. I've noticed this in my readings online as well. I don't begrudge anyone not wanting to let others in on their secret, sort of like the way my relatives treat fishing spots. I was curious if you could offer any recommendations or hints of a trail beyond the general advice to look out on the web and ask around to people who've been there. I'm balkanized not so much by the lack of other psychedelic seekers locally, but by time factors of working in the belly of the corporate beast, and I feel more compelled each day to find a breakout experience. And he finished by saying, P.S. My dad was on the Haberfield, the DDG. Maybe you two cross wakes at a time or two. Well, I did steam with the Haberfield a time or two, and so I'm going to assume that your dad and I covered a lot of ocean together, so please tell him hello for me. And as for uh, the appearance of an in-club mentality surrounding South American contacts, well, I'm sorry about coming across that way, and I certainly understand how people can get that opinion. I can remember that uh, it was only about 10 years ago that I was sitting in the swamps of Florida and wondering why it was so difficult to find out about reputable Iowa scarrows. And I wish there was an easy answer here, but the truth is that it's that old paranoia thing that's causing this reticence on our part about publishing the names and locations of healers we know to be sincere and true to the spirit of Lady Ayahuasca. For example, if I gave the contact information for the group of healers that I work with, uh, well, there's a possibility that they might receive thousands of emails if only a small percentage of our fellow saloners contacted them. And uh, if that happened, who could blame them if they told me to not come around anymore? You know, there, there isn't an easy solution to this problem that I know of. But uh, Pio does mention the conference that Alan Shoemaker has organized for this summer in Iquitos. Granted, uh, few people are going to be able to take advantage of that due to the expense, and 
I know that I would truly love to attend myself, but my one trip this year is going to be to Burning Man, and so I won't be able to make it either. However, uh, if you're drawn to ayahuasca like a moth to a flame, well, then this is the uh, first place I'd probably go if I were you, because I doubt if there will be a larger assembly of reputable healers uh, than you're going to find anywhere else uh, other than at that conference this year. And I'm sorry that I don't feel comfortable giving out more information, but uh, the Iowa Scarrows who do this work often do it at great personal risk for their own freedom, and I certainly don't want to do anything to harm them uh, or their important work. Another common thread in the email lately has been to ask if we're sponsoring a theme camp at Burning Man this year. Well, after organizing the Planque Norte camp in 2003, I decided that the theme camp organization was best left to younger people. It's, uh, it's an incredibly difficult thing to plan and organize, and my hat goes off to all of you who are actively engaged in putting together camps for this year's burn. For my part, uh, I organize and produce the Planque Norte lectures there, but not the camp that they're held in. Uh, this year, uh, we're going to be with the good folks at Eco Village, and I've been told that we'll have that gigantic tent again for our lecture series this year. As the summer progresses, I'll be passing along more information about the lectures, but as far as a place to actually camp, I'm uh, not the one who can help you on that, I'm afraid. But maybe some of our fellow saloners are looking for help with their camps and will let me know so I can pass the information along. On a slightly different note, Alicia, who is working with Charlie Grobe and Preet Chopra on the psilocybin study at Harbor UCLA, has uh, posed the following question. If you were a DJ for a therapeutic psilocybin session in a clinical setting, what would you play? After posting that question on some tribe.net forums, uh, Alicia tells me that she was surprised at how many suggestions she received. So I thought I'd pass her request along here and see if any of our fellow saloners have some suggestions along those lines. And if you do, just send them to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com and I'll eventually post the list on our PsychedelicSalon.org blog. Well, there's more mail to read, but uh, there's no more energy on my part. So I'm going to close for today. But next week I'll be playing an interview I recorded the day before yesterday with John Hanna, who does far more than his share of the heavy lifting for the psychedelic community. John and I talked about several information resources that are available to you, uh, including his Mind States conferences. And I think you'll enjoy hearing about what he's been up to lately, including his latest research into energy drinks, which is uh, <laughs> something I could use right now. Well, before I go, as always, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click on the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which may be found at www.psychedelicsalon.org. And if you have any questions, comments, complaints, or suggestions about these podcasts, well, just send them to lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. My thanks again go out to Chateau Hayuk for the use of your music here in the salon. And thank you. Thank you for joining me here in the salon today. It's really nice of you to stop by. For now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. And especially you, Queer Ninja. I know you're going to be all right. Take care, my friend. Thank you.